The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Hello. Their lives were shadowed by darkness and death, and yet their love for stories and ideas led them to the brightest realms of creative genius. They were the Brontes, Charlotte, Emily, and Anne, who lived with their brother Branwell in an unassuming Yorkshire town called Haworth. Their house, a parsonage, sat almost on top of a hill, with the enticing but sometimes dangerous moors above, and a cemetery, their father's church, and the industrializing town below. It was a dark little home, a roof to keep out the rain, a fire to keep things warm at night, and books and periodicals arriving from Edinburgh and London to excite their imagination. And from this humble little town, these three sisters and their active, searching minds generated a kind of revolution in literature— a small revolution, perhaps, but one whose impact can still be felt nearly 200 years later. The Brontes, today on The History of Literature. Hello, hello, welcome to the program. I'm your host, Jack Wilson. I did some traveling last month, enjoying a trip to London and Scotland, and in between that I stopped off in Yorkshire to visit some friends and take a visit to the Brontes' house, where I was fortunate to receive a private tour of the place, just before heading off to a wonderful lunch of coronation chicken sandwiches and a welcome spot of tea. Life is good there in Haworth, but it wasn't always so good. We'll have that story along with the consequences for the Brontes and literature, really in a moment. But first, let me tell you a little more about my trip. I don't only do literature when I'm on my journeys. I go to the London Eye and take river cruises and do all kinds of things that my kids enjoy. But I sneak in my literature where I can, kind of like my friend who used to grind up medication for his dog and spin it into cotton candy, or as our friends in the UK call it, candy floss. He couldn't get his dog to take the medication any other way, even concealing the pill in peanut butter or hamburger meat was not enough. The dog would simply eat the treat and spit out the pill. So, because we were working at a carnival at the time, and yes, I was a carny, and no, I am not ashamed and have no regrets, because we had access to this cotton candy spinner. So he ground it up into the sugar and pink flavoring, and voila, a medicinal remedy that melts in the mouth, and his dog was none the wiser and suddenly healthy again. If only there had been a medicine for the poor Brontes. They were ravaged by ill health, particularly tuberculosis. We'll get there in a moment. We're getting there. <laughs> we're moving forward. But first, I wanted to tell you about a conversation I had with someone I met at a party when I was in the UK. He was Scottish in origin, but had been born in Washington, D.C. That gave us something to talk about as I live near there myself. Crazy town and work there every day when I'm not podcasting. He told me his father had been a diplomat, the secretary to the ambassador, and in the late 1930s, his, his job, his father's job, had been to try to persuade America to join the war. This was before Pearl Harbor, of course, and so that's why my new acquaintance had been born in Washington, somewhere in Georgetown. His wife, chiming in, suggested that maybe that was why he didn't have a Scottish accent, and he said, oh no, 
No, no, that's not why. It's because people of my station in Scotland, families like mine, who sought their fortune by joining the empire, found that when they got to these remote locations, Hong Kong and India and Africa and so forth, they could not be understood with their accent. So they worked hard to erase the Scottishness and make their accent something different. And I said, oh, so your family has been in the diplomacy field for a while. Your grandfather even, maybe your great-grandfather? And he said, oh, farther than that. And I said, hmm, how far back does it go? And he said, 1707. (laughs) 1707. That's more than 300 years. America itself, as a nation, is not even 250. My own history is foggy by comparison. Grandparents who were cheesemakers, and I have no idea what their parents did. On the other side, my grandfather was a teacher, and his father was an enamelist. And that's as far as that goes. There's something wildly permanent and stable to me. That's how it seems to me. The idea that a family has been in the diplomatic service for centuries, they just keep rolling along with their profession, generation after generation after generation. I'd expect them to get good at it. Unless, maybe, such... Continuity actually makes them lazy as they take things for granted. Maybe being young and hungry and new, eager for the new, maybe that has some advantages too. And maybe, as we turn to the Brontes, there's something about genius springing up in unexpected places, not because the conditions are ripe for them, because the path is paved, but because the conditions are not ripe at all. One's path needs to be forged. Maybe the Brontes give us the example of how creativity comes out of strange tensions and odd juxtapositions rather than smooth paths and easy, long-accepted norms. Maybe genius likes things a little rough around the edges. These were not sisters who were educated at the finest schools and then sent off to Oxford and Cambridge. They were girls who, before they were nine years old, had lost their mother and two elder sisters. Their father was intelligent, an Irishman who had bootstrapped his way to a scholarship at Cambridge and who was ordained as a minister and assigned to the church in Haworth. He encouraged education in his girls, for his girls, and gave them and their brother a singular gift that was to animate their childhood and turn their ordinary lives into something magical and mystical and full of the seedlings of their future as writers of novels. We'll have that story and the rest of the brief but incredible lives of these literary comets after this. Hey, grown-ups! The Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his Fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself. And it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast. And those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, 
The Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at Titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Let's start with a group of four children living in the parsonage above the town of Haworth. Haworth is full of mills now, this is the 1820s and 30s, and the English countryside is being filled with factories and smoke and ash and the backbreaking work of the laborers needed to keep the great engine of progress pumping. Capitalism itself is at work here, churning out wealth at full steam. But it's not just nice new products cheaper than ever or the wealthy factory owners with suddenly all this power and leisure time on their hands. No, it's also affecting the people. Labor laws have not yet caught up with the need for the people inside the mills and the power of exploitation to fill that need. A labor law was passed to prevent children younger than the age of nine from working. Before that, everyone under the age of nine was permitted to work, and they did. And the factories themselves had not yet caught up with the designs needed to run on adult power only. The children, being the smallest, could wedge themselves into spaces and under equipment that needed to be cleaned and maintained and fixed, often given these tasks while the machines were still running. It's quite dangerous and at times violent and deadly. And of course, the hours were long and the weeks were full. And our four children five years separating the oldest from the youngest, are not workers in the factory, but the children of the clergyman at the head of the town, who wrote sermons and performed marriages and funerals, and who spent his spare time staying in touch with news and developments in other cities, and doing his best to campaign for improvements in Haworth. He wanted the schools to be better, and the diet and nutrition and sanitation, the quality of life measures that would help the lot of the faces who turned up every Sunday to listen to his message. He wrote letters and formed committees and sponsored schools and requested inspections from London, trying to identify problems and find solutions. And in the middle of that, he gives the children a gift, 12 wooden soldiers for them to play with. They've had a rough childhood, these four. More on that later. But for now, think of them as sad but young enough that they're still trying to be happy. Charlotte is ten, Branwell is nine, Emily is eight, and Anne is about six. The soldiers excite their imagination, almost to an unbelievable extent. You know that footage of Tiger Woods playing golf on television at age four? Or sometimes you hear stories about a famous drummer who was pounding on things for his or her entire life, even as a child. The kid couldn't stop tapping or clicking things or moving his hands or feet to make percussive sounds, with their parents going crazy. Stop that! Stop that! But the kid can't stop. And years later, 
He becomes a world-famous drummer, and everyone says, well, of course, we knew it all along. Look at that childhood. Look at the behavior. Look how what we saw showed us that this was going to happen. I feel a little like that when I hear about the Bronte children and their 12 wooden soldiers. They sound like young novelists. They have the instincts and the capacity, the interest, and then they do the perfect thing to make themselves into novelists. They are essentially practicing with these wooden soldiers. They gave them names and spoke of them with reverence as the young men. Within a year and a half, they started writing down the stories that they invented for these men, along with the worlds that the young men inhabited. First, the imaginary African kingdom called Glasstown, then a place called the Empire of Angria. As the children grew older and Charlotte went off to school, Emily and Anne invented a new continent in the North Pacific, Gondal, which was ruled by a woman. They drew upon the real world as it was coming to them through periodicals that their father subscribed to, Blackwood's Edinburgh Magazine, and the Leeds Intelligencer. As those and other magazines sent them articles about the state of the world, they would draw upon the details for their 12 young men, borrowing the the details, the facts from articles about Africa to slide into their description of Glasstown, for example. They used the maps and the geography and the other discoveries from explorations that were going on at the time, and the worlds that they created were becoming more and more realistic. And yet the heroes were full of adventure, with the key figure of Byron playing an enormous role in their imagination. They didn't learn about Byron until after his death. We'll have more about this later on as well, as Charlotte and Emily wrote two of the world's greatest novels with a Byronic hero at the heart of them. We had an episode on Byron and the effect that he had on the mood of the country, the way his personal character, the mad, bad, and dangerous-to-know side of him, yes, but also the artistic sensibility, the sexual magnetism, the passionate thirst for life, the seeming coldness as he tried to tame his own wilder side for polite company, not always successfully. Byron ended up in Heathcliff and Rochester, but before that he was the inspiration for the personalities of the twelve young men, the wooden toys who had an outsized place in the hearts and minds of these youngsters. This is the best part of the story if we're looking for evidence that the twelve soldiers were influential in the development of three accomplished novelists. The girls wrote books for the soldiers to read. I love that. Tiny books the size of a box of matches, but filled with carefully printed stories and drawings and detailed maps and landscapes. Printed on paper about one and a half by two and a half inches and bound with thread. They kept writing these stories for these men to read, and the stories grew more and more complex as the girls got older. Tiger Woods in the basement, watching his father swing, grabbing the clubs himself and swinging too. The world sees him at 19 or 20, a perfect golfer. Just as the world would find Currer, Ellis, and Acton Bell, the original pseudonyms for the three girls, as three accomplished novelists bursting onto the London literary scene like comets. We didn't watch Tiger in the basement, and the world didn't see the girls in their home, creating worlds and writing out elaborate books for their toy soldiers to read. Scholars have looked at the articles that were in the magazines and periodicals that the Brontes received, and they've traced them to their development. The one that interested me the most was the one that they read about Byron, apparently the first time they had heard of him. 
And I took a look at the article itself. I think I was able to find the right one. It's from 1825 in Blackwoods. And here's what's interesting. The article is a kind of review of the criticism of Byron. It's all about being misunderstood in the public eye. It's more specific than that. It's about the specific ways that Byron was criticized for his life and his morality and his choices. And this article takes a different position. This article says, Here was a great man. All the gossip and chatter is mostly mistaken, the criticism unfair, and in the end, we've clouded the reputation of a man we should be praising for the strength of his character and spirit, the forcefulness with which he impressed his will upon the world, and, of course, for the works of genius that he bestowed upon us. That's an interesting way for Byron to come into the minds of these children. The hero with dark secrets, the hero with romantic urges and depths of soul, the hero that society misunderstands and seeks to diminish. Their father, of course, being an establishment figure himself, the town full of institutions, and the moors, the grassy, boggy, uncultivated land separating one town from the next, a perfect setting for this anti-hero to come rolling in on his horse, bringing the wild with him, a fusion of nature and civilization residing in one simmering soul. There's a contradiction in the Moors that's worth unpacking. In a way, we're talking about romanticism, but let's just stick to the Brontes and their Moors for now. We tend to think of civilization versus nature as as a question of safety versus danger, inside versus outside. The town, or the house, is where we can lock the doors against wild animals or other threats. We put a roof over our heads and sleep comfortably while the wind whips by and the rain comes pouring down, or the lightning and thunder shake us with their power. Civilization is also refinement and education, Decent jobs that respectable people can do without losing their lives or limbs. It's clean, it's mannered, it's subtle. All three Bronte novelists address this. It might be their central theme, in a way. In comparing Charlotte and Emily and their sensibility with Anne, and what we find in her books is a fascinating endeavor. When we are examining lives cut short, as they were for the Brontes, we find ourselves immersed in details. If someone lives to be 80 and writes their best work at the age of 50, we might not care so much about childhood experiences or where they went to school. Maybe raising children was the key passage of their lives, or maybe it was their career. Maybe it was watching the decades roll by that inspired them. None of the six Bronte children ever made it to age 40. Charlotte died at 38, and she lived the longest by far. Of the other two novelists, Emily died at age 30, and Anne was only 29. And in those brief lives, which now become dazzling for us, we see the publication of volumes of poetry, and six published novels, and several others started or unpublished, and literary fame. We see trips to boarding school and a role as teachers in the school their father founded. We see some illicit love and a marriage for one of the girls, and we see a honeymoon more on this later. But for the most part, the portrait of the girls is as the children of a clergyman living in this town, living through their imagination and their beloved soldiers, 
absorbing information and putting it into narratives, close to one another, even as they in public are quiet and reserved, at least from some accounts, but also living through death, death of their mother, death of their older sisters, death even of the aunt who came to look after them, and death as part of their father's trade. 150 funerals a year in that little town of Haworth. So many that Patrick, their father, called for a London health inspector to come and help find out why everyone was dying. The health inspector's name was Benjamin Babbage, and if his last name sounds familiar, it might be because you've heard of his father, Charles Babbage, a mathematician who is often credited with coming up with the idea of a programmable computer. Benjamin Babbage came to Haworth and was appalled by what he found. The town's sanitation had not kept up with the growth and overcrowding that the industrializing mills had put into motion. Excrement ran through the streets. You can imagine the way that disease would spread, but there was a particular set of additional circumstances that places the Brontes in their context. When you visit Haworth, this becomes vivid. It's a morbid set of details, but bear with me, because it helps us understand the Brontes and their lives and their books. Imagine a hill with a house almost at the top. That's the parsonage where the Brontes lived. At the top of the hill, and on the other side, sloping away, are the moors. You can go miles on the moors before encountering the next village or even house. So you have nature, wild and uncultivated, stretching away from the house on that side. On the other side, below the parsonage, a few minutes down the hill, is the church where Patrick Bronte presided every Sunday. The Bronte girls would have walked there too, but in between the house and the church is the town cemetery. They would have walked through and past the cemetery probably every day. And remember, 150 funerals a year at one point. That's a lot of grieving, a lot of mourning, a lot of reminders of their own losses. That's buried deep within them. Below the church is the town, sloping further down the hill on a steep path. There are what you might expect here, a few shops and restaurants, a tavern or two, the post office where they sent off their manuscripts, and which returned the good news of their acceptance. Today, Haworth is quaint, but back then it would have also had the filth and suffering that we've described. And it had something else. Remember what we had here, a hill with a cemetery flowing down into the town. Benjamin Babbage took a look at this, at the cemetery in particular. They were burying families in stacked graves, six deep in some places, and they laid the stones flat to protect against grave robbers. The rain came washing down the hill, flooding through the cemetery, where the bodies were decomposing, and continuing on its way to the town, where it was used as drinking water. The water was recycling the disease that had killed the residents who were in the cemetery. The living in Haworth were being poisoned by Haworth's dead. The village elders fixed this eventually. After Benjamin Babbage told them what to do, they reoriented the cemetery and they created a reservoir that didn't contain the runoff. It helped. I didn't mind drinking the tap water when I was eating my coronation chicken sandwich during a break in our tour. 
But think about what this means for the Brontes in their house. Below them, literally steps below them, is the cemetery and the diseased town. That's civilization. Above them is the start of the moors. The moors here are not dirty, they're clean. Nature isn't a source of filth. It's where the air is freshest. Although the moors are a place of wilderness and untamed nature, in some ways, they're purifying. The rain that falls up there has not yet been tainted by the horrifying journey through the death trap cemetery. On a pleasant day, you could look down at the belching mills and the suffering populace, or you could go up, over the ridge, and escape all the woes of civilization into a world of fresh air and nature. But the moors could turn ugly as well. This isn't a a quiet, peaceful beach or a calm tree to regard. These were dangerous and dark places with big storms that rolled in quickly. Once it rained for a week straight, and Emily and Anne, who were the only girls in the house as their three elder sisters were at boarding school, were lonely and desperate for some fresh air. After the deluge stopped, they cajoled their father into letting them go out for a walk, and they went out with their brother Branwell and two hired hands, Nancy and Sarah. After they had gone a couple of miles, a storm rolled in. It started to thunder, the sky grew dark, and large hailstones began to fall. They were quite young. Emily was only six, and Anne was only four. Nancy and Sarah scooped them up, and ran toward a shelter in the distance, a place called Ponden Hall. Just as they reached it, the skies opened up, and the rain came down in torrents, with water and mud flooding across their landscape, a wave seven feet high that threw boulders through the air. This was where they had just been walking, and in an instant, it had transformed into something wild, like a beast. Back at the parsonage, Patrick, their father, was terrified, not knowing where they were, hoping they had found some shelter, when suddenly he heard a giant explosion that shook the house. He thought it was an earthquake. It wasn't. It was a bog explosion, a phenomenon of the moors. These were not prim and proper girls, stuck in some civilized school, living careful and refined lives and idly toying with the idea of darkness. They were steeped in darkness. Death was all around them, and destruction and danger. And adding to all this darkness as they grew older, their brother struggled with addiction to alcohol supplied by the town's tavern just below their church and to laudanum supplied by the chemist across the street. Branwell is a sad case. He wanted to be an artist, a portrait painter, and he had some talent but never found success. His addictions turned his room into something like a one-room opium den, full of the signs of mental struggles and depression and night demons. This would have affected the girls, too, and in particular made it a source for her fiction explicitly. The others, no doubt, have it coursing through their view of the world in other ways. The girls and their father considered Branwell to be a genius, but his weaknesses overcame his strengths, and just before he died, He lamented that he had lived a life of futility and had never accomplished anything of merit. His paintings, which are accomplished for an amateur, can still be seen in the Bronte home, converted to a museum in Haworth. So that sets the stage for the novels. That's our backdrop. We'll take a quick break, then come back with the dizzying 
almost unfathomably powerful books that this unassuming little family produced. Charlotte's first novel, The Professor, wasn't published, but she got an encouraging response from the publisher, who asked to see any longer works that Charlotte, who was writing under the name Currer Bell, might wish to send. Charlotte immediately got to work on Jane Eyre. She finished it quickly, sent it off, and six weeks later it was published. Jane Eyre is the story of a plain governess named Jane who has some early struggles at school. Charlotte herself had struggled at the boarding school her father had high hopes for, but which turned out to be a forbidding place where her two elder sisters got sick and ended up dying within weeks of one another. In the novel, the governess Jane ends up falling in love with her employer, Rochester. Rochester has a dark secret, however, and I won't spoil it for anyone who hasn't read it, other than to say that the beauty of Jane Eyre is the way it combines the first-person female perspective one of the first novels to really evoke this intensely, and the naturalism of her perspective with the rattling good storytelling aspects of gothic melodrama. The critic George Henry Lewes, remember him from our George Eliot episode, who was uh, her husband, George Henry Lewes said that it was, quote, an utterance from the depths of a struggling, suffering, much-enduring spirit, end quote. Charlotte was a sensation almost overnight, and her next novels, Shirley and Villette, weren't quite as celebrated, but they're fascinating in their own right. She was in the middle of writing Shirley when disaster struck the family. Emily, Branwell, and Anne all died within eight months of one another. Charlotte couldn't write during this period, but she found that after Anne died, writing was a kind of consolation for her, and she managed to complete the novel Shirley, which was published in 1849. Shirley is in the third person and was received as less shocking than Jane Eyre. It's a historical novel set in Yorkshire in 1811 to 1812 in the wake of industrialization and the Napoleonic Wars, and in particular, the Luddite uprisings as activists smashed the machines and tried to return Yorkshire to its previous pre-industrialized state. Charlotte's final novel if we count the three novels published in her lifetime, was Villette, which returns to the world of first-person narration, this time in the eyes and voice of Lucy Snow, who travels abroad to teach in a boarding school. She falls in love with a man she cannot marry. Charlotte had spent some time in Brussels, and the book draws some inspiration from that experience. Villette is a fascinating book. I might need to do an entire show just on Villette. The psychology of Lucy Snow, as she deals with isolation and spiritual intensity, is as rich as anything in Jane Eyre. George Eliot preferred it to Jane Eyre, in fact, saying, quote, Villette is a still more wonderful book than Jane Eyre. There is something almost preternatural in its power. End quote. Virginia Woolf agreed, saying, quote, It is Charlotte Bronte's finest novel, all her force, and it is the more tremendous for being constricted, goes into the assertion, I love, I hate, I suffer. End quote. 
It says, innovative as Jane Eyre, it might strike us as more so today. Jane Eyre has been absorbed into the bloodstream, but Villette is still out there for us. Territory we're still charting. The style and themes make it feel fresh in a way that Jane Eyre might not be, at least at this point. The three Brontes published a volume of poems in 1846, but it wasn't exactly a sensation. It sold two copies. That's <laughs> it's one fewer than the number of authors, which is never a good sign. But then, in 1847, Wuthering Heights, Jane Eyre, and Agnes Grey were all published. Emily's Wuthering Heights might have been the most sensational of all of them. It was Emily's only published novel, sadly, as she died soon after, at the age of 30. Wuthering Heights is a wild thicket of a novel, a fiend of a book, an incredible monster, said Dante Gabriel Rossetti. The action is laid in hell, only it seems places and people have English names there. <laughs> End quote. The book begins with Lockwood, who travels to Yorkshire for some peace and quiet and takes up residence in a place owned by Heathcliff who lives in a remote farmhouse on the moors. Heathcliff seems to be a gentleman, but he has rough manners. Lockwood stays in a room that has some books and other effects of Catherine, who once lived there. And while Lockwood sleeps, he has a nightmare where a ghostly Catherine is trying to come in through the window. He cries out, and Heathcliff charges in. Heathcliff opens the window to let Catherine's spirit enter. Nothing happens. Heathcliff tells Lockwood to switch bedrooms with him. He wants to stay by the window, watching and waiting for Catherine's ghost. That's just the beginning. We then go back 30 years to hear the story of Heathcliff and Catherine, the story of their romance, the thwarted love and the jealousy and revenge that result. And it turns a coming-of-age story into something haunted and doomed and eerily fascinating. Heathcliff becomes something like nature itself, booming and dangerous, a force. We go from life to death, from uncontrollable passion to the contemplative silence of the grave, with only the air to contain the impression of the people who once roamed the moors like beasts. As a group, critics were baffled by the book. While they admired its rugged power, they couldn't believe the savagery and selfishness of the main characters. It was hard not to see it in the context of Jane Eyre, which was also wild, and view the Brontes, or the Bells, as they were then known, as being somewhat strange figures, choosing, quote, painful and exceptional subjects, end quote. One journal, The Atlas, wrote this about Wuthering Heights, quote, We know nothing in the whole range of our fictitious literature which presents such shocking pictures of the worst forms of humanity. There is not in the entire dramatis personae a single character who is not utterly hateful or thoroughly contemptible. Even the female characters excite something of loathing and much of contempt. Beautiful and lovable in their childhood, they all, to use a vulgar expression, turn out badly. End quote. A perfect misanthropist heaven one magazine said, wild, confused, disjointed, and improbable, said another, with characters who, quote, are savages ruder than those who lived before the days of Homer, end quote. Before the days of Homer. <laughs> Elemental. Pre-civilized. This is the world returned to a Hobbesian state. 
Do you not want to read the book now? <laughs> could, I, could there be anything better than this? After it was revealed who the Bells really were, critics were confounded even further. George Henry Lewes, our old friend, Mr. George Eliot, wrote, quote, Curious enough it is to read Withering Heights and The Tenant of Wildfeld Hall, which was the book Anne writ- had written, quote, And remember that the writers were two retiring, solitary, consumptive girls. Books, coarse even for men, coarse in language and coarse in conception, the coarseness apparently of violence and uncultivated men turn out to be the productions of two girls living almost alone, filling their loneliness with quiet studies and writing their books from a sense of duty, hating the pictures they drew, yet drawing them with austere conscientiousness. He concludes, There is matter here for the moralist or critic to speculate on. <laughs> yes, indeed, Mr. Luz, or the 21st century reader, or the podcaster. And one thing that comes to mind is that these retiring, consumptive girls had the gift of self-confidence, of writing where their interests and artistry and talent and genius took them, not where society wanted them to stay, but where life and their devotion to their stories told them they should go. Withering Heights. We've covered Jane Eyre a few times, but we might need to do an episode just on Wuthering Heights at some point. It's also been adapted for television and films a million times, and it's inspired plays and novels and paintings and songs and poems, one of which we'll explore further later in our program. And now, let's turn to Anne, the youngest of the six children. Anne has lived in the shadow somewhat, with Charlotte and Emily taking up all the literary reputational oxygen. And of course, there was the brother, Branwell, who lived his sad life. Anne drew upon that sadness in her writings. I don't know that Anne lived in the shadows during her lifetime, though. It wasn't as if they could predict that she would be the forgotten Bronte for the next 200 years. She didn't spend decades watching her sisters succeed or anything like that, jealous of her success, ignored by her family and the world. She was right there with them. She was born in 1820 lived through the death of her mother, which happened when she was only one, and her two oldest sisters, who died when she was five. She went off to boarding school at 16, did that for a year, then came back to Haworth and worked as the others did as a teacher. Then she took a position as a governess and did that for six years. In the meantime, she published a volume of poetry with Charlotte and Emily, which came out in 1846, the one that sold two copies. This was when she was 26. She published the novel Agnes Grey in 1847 and The Tenant of Wildfell Hall in 1848. Then she died of what was apparently tuberculosis in 1849. Not a life in the shadows, but a life filled with sadness, cut tragically short. Anne's books are different from the books of the other two. They're the most realistic of the three and the most moral. Agnes Gray tells the story of a governess oppressed by the cruelty of the wealthy family who employs her. It's closer to Jane Austen than the other two sisters, a simpler prose style, a set of minute observations, and subtle but powerful insights into the quiet psychologies of its characters. Emily's novel is a house in a storm, with the doors and windows wide open, the shutters flapping open and shut, and the owner nowhere to be found because he's probably off tormenting himself with some memory of passion somewhere. Agnes Gray is the house with order restored, 
The windows shut tight most of the time, unless they're open now and then for a gentle breeze, but always under control. In her next book, Anne found a more shocking subject, alcoholism and debauchery, the same afflictions her brother Branwell suffered from. The novel attacked Victorians and their 19th century sensibilities, and Anne found herself defending the book against charges that it was overly graphic and disturbing. This is what she wrote. When we have to do with vice and vicious characters, I maintain it is better to depict them as they really are than as they would wish to appear. To represent a bad thing in its least offensive light is doubtless the most agreeable course for a writer of fiction to pursue, but is it the most honest or the safest? Is it better to reveal the snares and pitfalls of life to the young and thoughtless traveler, or to cover them with branches and flowers? Oh, reader, if there were less of this delicate concealment of facts, this whispering, peace, peace, when there is no peace, there would be less of sin and misery to the young of both sexes who are left to wring their bitter knowledge from experience. Even though... It was shocking. It was not the same as the wild and untamed Jane Eyre or, good God, (laughs) the total maelstrom of Withering Heights. And that leads most people into the view that Emily was wild, Anne was civilized, and Charlotte was somewhere in the middle. But there's a twist to all this. I'm crediting the atmosphere and environment of Haworth with the creation of Charlotte and Emily, their sensibility and their interests. Romanticism was in the air and Byron, and they tapped into all of that and created two enduring masterpieces. I visited their town and was struck by the moors and the explosive power of nature one finds there, even today. So what happened to Anne? Was she more mature than the others? But what would that mean? That she's for the grown-ups, and Charlotte and Emily are for the teenagers in us all? Something about that didn't sit quite right. As I was wrestling with these questions, I ran across an article in The Guardian that was so insightful, I wanted to share some of it with you. It's written by a woman named Lucy Mangan in 2016. Ms. Mangan also took a trip to Haworth and had her mind clarified by what she experienced there, and the questions she poses at the end of her journey give us something useful to think about. The title of the article is How the Moors Changed My Mind About the Brontes. The subtitle is Charlotte and Emily were the fantasists, Anne was the realist. That's how I staunchly believe things to be, until a recent trip to Haworth. She writes, I've just got back from a week's filming in Haworth and its environs. It's bleak, freezing, inhospitable, endlessly compelling environs. For a documentary about, yes, you guessed it, the Brontes. There were three of us presenting, each going in to bat for a different member of the family. One, a novelist, was Emily's champion. Another was Charlotte's, and I was there to represent Anne. She's the only Bronte sister I can really cope with. The others, with their withering heights and their Jane Eyres, are just too much. To sturm and to drong are not my way, in life or in reading. Give me the quiet forensic scrutiny of Agnes Gray, the eponymous heroine of Anne's first book, based on her miserable experiences as a governess for two rich families full of semi-feral children or the slow, pitiless anatomizing of the effects of alcoholism on a Victorian family, so accurate that the tenant of Wildfell Hall could have been written yesterday. No mad women in the attic, no ghosts, no blinded Byronic heroes. 
Anne's protagonists are ordinary women coming to extraordinary decisions, and they end up with good men, farmers, curates, with working eyes but no grand estates, who must stand by until her heroines have rescued themselves. But a curious thing happened as the week went on. I found myself increasingly in sympathy with Charlotte and Emily, that hitherto emotionally exhausting pair. It is impossible to walk across the open moors for long without starting to feel the stir of wild imaginings, a longing to fill it with stories big and bold enough for the job, and to people it with characters strong enough to infuse its unforgiving acres with life. It is impossible to sit in the parsonage for long, looking down on a rapidly industrializing mill town in one direction, eternally unchanging landscape to the other, and not feel your imagination wedded between the past and future. By the end, the wonder really was that Anne managed to put all those temptations to melodrama and gothic insanity to one side and steer her own course. Or maybe we've got her all wrong. Maybe Charlotte and Emily were the realists, writing what they knew, and she was the fantasist, wildly imagining ordinary houses, pretty gardens, and emotions that can fill only a human heart, and not the gaping maw of the Yorkshire moors. What a great article. She frames this perfectly. Think of extreme forms of nature like the desert or the darkened forest or the vast and empty sea. Think of the heat and desolation of a desert island or a trek through endless ice and snow. Think of the thunderstorms rolling in across the peat bogs and miles to travel to your destination and the ground literally exploding under your feet, so loud it makes people think that there's been an earthquake. Think of being trapped under a tree in such a storm while the air shifts and the pressure mounts and dissipates. Have you been in a storm like that, where the pressure seems so hot and unbearable and the rain sweeps in and suddenly there's a lifting, a cooling, that almost seems eerie, like the cold grasp of death coming to clench your body just before dragging you to some dark netherworld. The universe is a spooky place. Nature is dangerous and sublime. We humans and our puny little struggles are living through the grace of Mother Nature, blessed by Mother Earth. That's how it seems at the best of times anyway. And we're also living by the permission of the wild beast, our jailer, or torturer, who can rear up at any time, like a centaur, rising up on his hind flanks, and hurl nature at us with thunder and might. And how we navigate this, even though we have cell phones, even though we have the internet, even though we have in so many ways insulated ourselves from thinking about nature, we've tamed it and fooled ourselves into thinking we are beyond nature somehow, but it's still there. The stars are still more glorious and significant than any transitory little blip of stardust that's managed to eke its way into existence here on this rock we call home. Here, where we scrabble to find life and meaning. At Haworth, when you're there, you don't think that Charlotte and Emily were fabulous, blowing up these calm and peaceful moors into something wild and romantic. You think they had their eyes open, and their souls open to the world around them. The world was wild and romantic. It is wild and romantic. Byron knew it. They knew it. They drafted those feelings into their literary army. Not to say that Anne's not correct, too. 
She is. The study of human behavior is also a worthy project, even if we stick to the safe. There's the sea, and there's the shore. Sometimes I want to send my boat out as far into the sea as possible to risk capsizing, to have an adventure, to roll with big waves. And sometimes I want my boat to hug the shore. That's fine, too. Different pleasures involved, different destinations, different journeys, both of them full of richness and insight. I liked this article by Lucy Mangan so much, I had to stop and think about myself, about why I like this article so much. Okay. I confess I'm a literary nerd, and as such, I ride for all things Bronte. So far, so good. But that's actually not true, if I'm honest. There's a lot of literary criticism I don't care for too much. I don't find all of it compelling. But this article I liked quite a bit. This article gave me something to think about. This article helped me to see something familiar in a new and fresh way. And the themes of this article matter. We're all wrestling with this problem, even if we're not novelists trying to discover how realistic or how fantastical to be. We're all creating our understanding of who we are and how we fit. We're creating narratives of our lives even as we live them. We need to find our way. We need to figure out how we deal with other people. And we need to figure out how the world, the outside world, the one that's been here for billions of years and will be here for billions more, whether there are humans here or not, we need to figure out how that world plays upon us and preys upon us, how it infiltrates and inspires. So, thank you, Ms. Lucy Mangan. You have sent me on a bender like an apothecary brewing up a potion of laudanum designed just for me. Death came for the Brontes in a big way. The mother, the two eldest daughters, Maria and Elizabeth, the aunt who came to care for the younger ones, and then our four children. Branwell died September 1848, age 31. Emily died in December of the same year, age 30. And in May, Anne died at the age of 29. Charlotte lived for a little over five more years before dying at the age of 38. All four of the younger children are officially said to have died of tuberculosis, the disease that had claimed their two older sisters as well, though there are some asterisks there, as scholars have argued, for different causes based on the evidence we have. We haven't talked about Charlotte's marriage I'd like to think gave her some happiness, at least, though it also came with some hardship. It was with a man named Arthur Bell Nichols, who lived nearby and who had been in love with Charlotte for a long time. They met in private on the moors at a meeting place just out of view of the parsonage where Charlotte and her family lived. Her father objected to the match. Nichols was too poor. Patrick never really got over his objection. Charlotte accepted anyway, in defiance of her father, and her father sort of relented, giving his approval and planning to attend the wedding and so he could give her away. But then he changed his mind and decided he couldn't. Charlotte had to attend the ceremony without him, without Emily or Anne or Branwell or her mother or the two eldest sisters. It was just Charlotte and her father at that point. And then for poor Charlotte, it was just herself. Charlotte and Arthur went to Ireland for their honeymoon. I like that. Maybe the happiest trip that Charlotte was ever able to take. 
It was a brief interlude of happiness. She became pregnant and soon fell ill, attacked by nausea and faintness, and died with her unborn child in 1855. The cause was officially listed as tuberculosis, but biographers studying the record have suggested it may have been dehydration and malnourishment associated with pregnancy complications. So in the end, it was just Patrick, the father, who outlived his entire collection of loved ones, closing each life like a man turning the pages on the saddest chapters of a relentless book. We have their legacy, their gifts to the world that continually enlighten and enchant. Our friend of the show, Margot Livesey, told us about Jane Eyre and its importance to her. I recommend revisiting that episode, the first conversation I had with Margot, where she talked about her childhood and how the descriptions of the school in Jane Eyre resonated with her. And for the rest of the world, these books stand apart. There isn't really another example quite like the Brontes. Jane Eyre and Withering Heights are probably the two best novels by two siblings ever. And when you include Anne as a third, you wonder if we will ever see another literary family like these three girls growing up when they did, and where they did, and how they did, and putting their gifts to good use. They are each fascinating in their own right, and they are fascinating to compare. Let's give the last word to Sylvia Plath, who traveled to Yorkshire to meet her in-laws and was inspired by the Moors to write her own tribute to Emily and the landscape that Emily made so famous. Quote, If I pay the roots of the heather too close attention, they will invite me to whiten my bones among them, writes Plath. And then she closes with these two stanzas. Quote, I come to wheel ruts and water limpid as the solitudes that flee through my fingers. Hollow doorsteps go from grass to grass. Lintel and Sill have unhinged themselves. Of people the air only remembers a few odd syllables. It rehearses them moaningly. Black stone, black stone. The sky leans on me, me the one upright among the horizontals. The grass is beating its head distractedly. It is too delicate for a life in such company. Darkness terrifies it. Now, in valleys narrow and black as purses, the house lights gleam like small change. Hmm. There's, that was Sylvia Plath. There's the individual in the world, the me among the universe the planet, and our human dilemma in a few lines as vivid as lightning, the water fleeing through her fingers, the air that recalls the impressions made by people who once walked through, the death that comes for us all. And in darkened valleys with the terrifying hollowness all around us, there on the horizon are some house lights gleaming in the distance, small change in their black purses. We stretch toward those houses, we long for them, we consider them, we retreat to their safety, or reject them outright. We embrace our destiny with the fierce gods of nature, we live out our passions with a throaty roar, howling in the wind, attacking the rain with our cries, begging for more love, more meaning, more life, before it's our turn to slip away into the quiet grave at the bottom of the hill. 
Okay, that's going to do it for this episode of the History of Literature. The Brontes. I hope you enjoyed it. Was it a little bleak there at the end? Isn't life always bleak at the end? Exciting at the beginning. Dreary in the middle with hopefully some moments of happiness punctuating the scene. And then, kaput. As my Swiss grandmother might have put it. The big kaput. Well, we have some work to do before we get to that point including our work here journeying our way through the history of literature. I feel like we crossed some kind of threshold taking on the Brontes. Do you feel that way? Like we rounded a corner? They call forth all our powers, don't they? So, what's next? Well, maybe I'll leave that as a surprise. Instead, I'll thank you for giving this little muddy wheel rut of a podcast a listen. I hope your cart is still upright and mobile able to take you on its clattering path all the way to some wonderful destination. Maybe to a wedding. Maybe a secret assignation with a prospective lover. Maybe just to the market on a fine day when all seems right with the world. We apologize for any disturbance, ma'am. We didn't intend to interfere. We real... (laughs) We real... Wheel! We real wheel ruts! We real. Let me try this again. <laughs> maybe do a wedding. Maybe a secret assignation with a prospective lover. Maybe just to the market on a fine day when all seems right with the world. We apologize for any disturbance, ma'am. We didn't intend to interfere. We wheel ruts don't always have a lot of choice in the matter. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>